ended with an amen, and I think we should amen again. We have been blessed, have we not, by the music this week. We thank the choir for singing so powerfully about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day, that great day that we look forward to this evening when we shall see him face to face. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 5 and then verse 12. That is the Gospel of John. Chapter 13, reading from verses 1 to 5, and then verse 12. Follow with me. It will be on the screen as well. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know? What I have done for you. This group, this small group, are about to make God known in ways that they couldn't even imagine. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has told them. He has indicated this to them. He has alluded it many times to them. He will say it clearly just before he leaves them to return back to the Father. He will say, as we have it recorded in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of of the earth. You shall be witnesses. You will make God known. They, this little band, this little group, are to continue the witness of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he was confronted by Pilate, and Pilate asks him, are you a king then? Are you a king? Jesus says in John 18, 37, For this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And now they, like their master, will be witnesses to the truth about Jesus. The question that has been on my mind all this week And you know the theme that we have had this week. 
making God known. As I look at this small group of individuals, as I look at them, I'm wondering, I'm asking the question, how? How did they do that? How did they achieve that? We've heard a lot of things this week, different things about how to make God known. But how was it that this small group of individuals became such a powerful witness for Jesus Christ? So much so that the world has never seen such a powerful witness. Can I suggest to you this evening in the context of this communion service that there are three things that those individuals, those disciples experienced in order to make God known in the ways that they did. Three things that you and I, if we continue to do them, will also be powerful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in our day and in our time. Number one, they would encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ through their own personal experience of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it would change them. It would transform them. What they saw, what they witnessed over that weekend will change them forever. Number two, they would be unified and empowered by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, they would minister to a lost world, to a broken world from a community that would be founded on and motivated by a community of love. Follow me this evening as we come to the table. In John chapter 13, as we have read it, Jesus is down to his last few hours before his crucifixion. He has invited these men to a meal. In fact, the Bible says he greatly anticipated this meal. He has been looking forward to this meal. He has invited this group of disciples that have been with him for the past three and a half years. Jesus has ministered to them. Jesus called them. Jesus chose them. They have watched. They have listened. He has allowed them to be very free with them as they have wandered together across Israel, north and south, east and west. They have asked questions and Jesus has answered them, called by Jesus to learn so that in due course, they will be able to teach. He has explained to them so many times, and will do it again on this night, that he is going to suffer and die. He tells them that soon they are going to have to stand in his place, that soon the kingdom of God that he has shown is going to be witnessed in their lives through their compassion, through their commitment, through the way that they live their lives. Yet I want to ask tonight, just before the crucifixion of Jesus just before he is about to leave. The question is, what kind of people is he going to entrust his kingdom to? Who's he, con who's he trusting to continue this, this great mission? You know, as a church planter, I know how important it is to have a good core group. In fact, if you go through all of the manuals or at least 13 characteristics that you're looking for, 
when you form a core group in order to be successful in planting a church. Now, I was looking through that list and looking at the disciples, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if any of them would have made that list. I mean, you've all seen that beautiful picture, right? The Last Supper, where all the disciples are sitting down there uh, round the table with Jesus. I want you to look round the table with me just for a few moments. As we ask the question, who's he about to leave to be witnesses for him? Well, if you look around the table, who'd you spot? Well, you'll see Judas, the plotter and schemer, who has been having uh, secret meetings with the religious establishment, who is, who is trying somehow to force Jesus' hand. Judas, who is about to sell Jesus and himself, actually, for 30 pieces of silver. Chancellor of the Exchequer, local church treasurer, who it is said had his hand in the offering plate. Judas, who, if you read the stories just prior to this meal, the Judas who, who, who condemned the extravagance of a grateful Mary, who had poured perfume on the feet of Jesus in preparation for his burial, insisting that instead the money would have been put to better use if it had been given to the poor. You know what he's implying, don't you? That it was somehow wasted wasted on Jesus. Judas, who will give at that critical moment the authorities, the inside information of where Jesus would be at a time when the crowds would not be around, allowing the snatch squad to do the task quickly and quietly without getting much attention. Judas, who in a few hours will identify and betray Jesus with a kiss, and I will say this evening, that is not what a kiss is for. According to Matthew 27 and verse 3, Jesus, uh, Judas will feel remorseful. He will recognize his sin and then he will take his life. But you shall be witnesses. Huh? It is during this meal that Luke and other gospel writers record that a dispute arose around that table. The subject, you will remember, is not the coming sufferings of Jesus Christ, but actually who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, Jesus has told them that he is about to die, give up his life for them. And all they want to talk about is who's going to be first in the kingdom of heaven, as if being first and being great means anything in the kingdom of heaven. You know, as I was growing up, I remember there was a boxer wasn't there who used to say, I'm the greatest. Do you remember, do you remember him? I'm the greatest, Muhammad Ali. He probably was for a while, at least in the boxing arena. He was getting into a plane, the story goes, one day, and the flight attendant told him to buckle his seatbelt or the plane would not take off. She was a strong character. He said, I'm not going to buckle my, my belt. She said, oh, yes, you are, or else we're not taking off. Ali said, I don't have to. You know who I am? I'm Muhammad Ali. I don't have to do anything. I'm not going to put on no silly seatbelt. She said, you are, or this plane ain't taking off. Ali said, I'm not, because Superman don't need no belt. <laughs> to which she replied, Superman don't need no plane. 
misplaced greatness. Now, there is no doubt in my mind who started that dispute. If you read it, all of the illustrations that I'm pulling out now have happened within just a few days or a week or two just prior to this meal. I mean, they've done it before. They were called the sons of thunder. Who were they? James and John, sons of Zebedee. They were called, they sound like some kind, some some characters out of a, a superhero comic, don't they? It's almost like, oh, look out, here come the sons of thunder. They had this image. Whether it was true or not, who knows, but they were projecting it. They had a reputation that had been earned. Look, here comes the sons of thunder. But it's almost comical. Almost comical. Because if you look at Matthew 20, 20, the the big strong boys, the sons of thunder, want to ask Jesus a question, but they don't go and ask him themselves. They go and send mom. Can you imagine the sons of thunder coming home to mom? Hey, mom, we're home, the sons of thunder. Oh, by the way, can you ask Jesus a question for us? Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And you know what the question is. The question is, can my boys, the sons of thunder, these boys who can't even show up and ask you themselves, do they, can they sit at your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus comes back and he says, can you drink the cup from the cup that I am about to drink from? Can you do that? I don't know about you. I'm glad Jesus handled that one. I'd want to throw the cup at them, (laughs) let alone drink from it. Greatness, they have no idea what greatness is. Jesus is about to show them what greatness is. And then there's Thomas. Look at Thomas seated around that table. You know how we remember Thomas, right? How do we remember Thomas? What do we call him? (laughs) Doubting Thomas. You know, he wasn't always a doubting Thomas. Isn't it a shame that we just remember the bad points about people? That's a real shame. In John 11, again, just prior to this meal, Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, is about to die. A group has come to Jesus and told him and says, Jesus, Jesus, you've got to go over. Your friend is ill. And there's this big discussion that takes place in John 11 between Jesus and the disciples. And basically, the disciples are saying, we shouldn't go. In fact, Jesus, if you go to Judea, you know what's happening in Judea. They are trying to kill you. Probably best we don't go there. They will throw rocks at you until you die. You see, the disciples don't want to go. They will kill you. They will kill us. We want to live. Let's stay here. Living is good. Let's do more of it. In verse 16, here it comes in verse 16. Thomas stood up and he said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. This is manly Thomas. This is Thomas filled with power. But let me tell you something. It's an image. It won't last because they go and Jesus is arrested and all of the disciples run for it. When the soldiers come, where's Thomas? They're all in the bushes including Thomas, and from that moment, he's going to be doubting. Peter, he's seated around the table. You are my witnesses. What? How can that be? Peter, who got it so right when Jesus said it, you know, everybody's talking about me. Who do you think I am? You remember the response of Peter? You are 
You are, you are the son of God. In John 6, 66, I like that, John 6, 66, where we read all the disciples were deserting, a lot of the disciples were deserting Jesus simply because he was teaching some very difficult things. And Jesus turns to that group and he says, are you going to leave me as well? Are you going? And Peter says, if we go, where do we go? For it is you and you alone who have the words of eternal life. Peter, who knew the identity of Jesus, who knew where he belonged with Jesus, and yet Jesus knows that within a few hours, what's he going to be doing? You will be my witnesses. No, I don't even know him. How is Jesus going to respond to them? What's he going to say to a Judas and a Peter and to a James and a John? What is he going to do for this group? He does what we've read in chapter 13, verse 3. Turn to it again. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, what does he do? He arose from that supper table and took off his garments and he puts a towel around his waist and then one by one begins to wash the feet of those you will be my witnesses. Jesus is taking on, you know this, the role of a slave, the role of a servant. Jesus with a towel around his waist. Jesus washing away the dirt and the filth from his created order. Why is he doing it? Why is he doing it? Was he doing it to shame them? Do you behave better when people put you down? Do you behave better when, when, when people tear you up? No. He is revealing something so powerful, so life-changing, something that expresses the sin condition as it is found in the human heart, something that is so beautiful it cannot be contained in the heart of God. It will transform this little group of men into the most powerful witnesses this world has ever seen. According to Acts, it says, aren't these the ones who have turned the world upside down? Oh, it starts here in John 13 with a towel, with some emblems. It will take him to a cross and to a grave and then victory. The problem with the disciples was they needed to experience it for themselves. They needed to see it. That's why those gospel writers would say, we touched it, we felt it, we saw it, it was there. You know, I want to say this. One of the biggest problems in the church right now is the issue of transformation, of being changed by the very message we have been given to bear to the world. The disciples had to be changed by it first, by personal experience, and you and I, to be powerful witnesses for God, must also allow that message to change us. Number two, those men needed to be unified and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it would ever be done. You know what is one of the fruits of a transformed life? Oneness. Oneness. That is why if you read the account, I hope you do, 
From John 13 all the way until the crucifixion, one of the things that Jesus spends a lot of time on is oneness. He prays for oneness just before he's arrested. John 17, 11, read it. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. And here it comes. That they may be one as We are one. You know, oneness is a prerequisite for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do we understand that? Did they get it? Did they get the Holy Spirit? Listen, Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Oneness. So when, and let me say something about the Holy Spirit. You know something, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit always brings with him the experience of his family the experience of the Godhead the experience of the Trinity how have the Trinity experienced one another from all eternity do you suppose that in the Godhead there's a lot of arguments about who's the most omniscient omnipresent who's the oldest who works the hardest no never There is a kind, I find it difficult to explain it, but I'm going to just call it a preferred deference. A preferred deference to each other. That is concentrating attention on the other. You see it clearly in the Gospels, in relationship to Jesus. The Holy Spirit kind of, when Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit goes out of sight and he says almost, pay attention to him, notice him, listen to him, be preoccupied with him, love him, serve him, follow him. The Spirit does not draw attention to himself, but to Jesus. You know, the Holy Spirit desires that we are preoccupied with Jesus Christ. That we will be overcome again, thrilled again, excited and gripped again by the majesty and the relevance of Jesus Christ. That's why we come to the table here tonight. And then there's Jesus, who unlike the disciples around this table who are squabbling about who's going to be the greatest and the best, says in John 8, 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. He submits to the Holy Spirit. He submits to the will of the Father. Jesus said, I don't even speak my own words, but I speak the words of of my Father. What's his final prayer just before he goes to the cross? Not my will. Oh, I'd rather not do this, but it is not my will, but your will. And then there's the Father. You know, the Father speaks twice in the Gospels. Once at the baptism of Jesus and secondly at the transfiguration of Jesus. And both times he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He doesn't then say, and don't forget, I'm up here as well. You know, what the, what the Father wants for the Son is for the world to know the Son. Jesus is his total preoccupation. Each of the Godhead pointing faithfully and unselfishly to each other in an unbroken circle of mutual submission, servanthood, love, and delight. All three experiencing oneness throughout all of eternity until that day 
because community is such a beautiful thing. That God creates human beings in his own image. He creates male and female in his own image with the capacity to understand and to experience and to know oneness. What does Genesis say? When a man and a woman come together and the two shall become one. You see, the fellowship, the community of God has been extended. God wanted his creation to know oneness, but we lost it at the fall. And Adam and Eve have to leave Eden. And leaving Eden is not just about leaving some kind of geographical location. You understand that. When the Bible talks about leaving Eden, it's talking about a state of community. He's talking about a loss of community. The Bible describes it as going east of Eden. When Cain kills Abel, what direction does he take? It says he went eastwards. Because east of Eden becomes a picture of the horror and tragedy that happens when human beings lose community. And you know something tonight? We still live east of Eden. We need to come to this table. That's why loneliness is so painful. That's why it's such a powerful thing when you see, when you see a great marriage. Or when you see a parent-child relationship. Or when your football team wins knowing that they have worked so hard together to get that result. This oneness creates a longing for us and a longing in us. We need community. That is why the prayer of Jesus extends from this, these 12 to who? To us. John 17, 20 and 21. My prayer... <clears throat> is not for them alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The intimacy of the Trinity becomes the picture that Jesus wants for us here and now. Now listen as we come to the table in a few moments. I want you to think about what it cost the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to say, let us bring fallen human beings back into fellowship and back into community, that the plan of salvation was put into progress, just what it cost. Jesus asked that question after he had washed the feet of the disciples. Do you understand what I have done for you? And to, tonight I ask you that question. Do you understand what it has cost? For the Son will say, I will leave heaven and Come to this earth. I will leave the perfect oneness that I have known from all ages. I will be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I will become like human beings. I will take on their brokenness. I will take on their sin. I will take on their loneliness, their separation in ways that they will never truly understand. I will die. I will cry out from the cross, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus took every sin that you and I have ever committed. On the cross, he took a world that was in rebellion to him. On the cross, he took a fallen creation. On the cross, he took the condemnation of the law. On the cross, he would break the very power of Satan. And beyond the cross would destroy its greatest enemy, death. 
The father says, I will offer my son. I will give my son whom I love beyond words. I will see him broken. I will see him twisted, rejected, beaten, and killed. I will see the sin of the whole human race poured out on him and his pain will be my pain and there will be brokenness between the father and the son who have only known oneness throughout all of the ages. And the Holy Spirit says, I will be poured out onto this earth, mostly in silent and invisible ways, but I will offer to lead and to guide, never exalting myself, always pointing to the Son, even though my promptings will be ignored, even though the New Testament says the Holy Spirit's power would be quenched, even though the Spirit would be grieved. You know, the Spirit was never grieved by the Father in eternity. The Spirit was never grieved by the Son in eternity, but now, the Spirit will be grieved. Father, Son, Holy Spirit will, be, will take upon themselves the pain and the brokenness of community, the brokenness of oneness, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Jesus says, do you understand? Do you understand what I have done for you? And you know, tonight we're invited back into community. We're invited back into the fellowship through the gracious ministry of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is why I want to put a little footnote here to do things, my friends, that would lead to disunity. Things that the Son has given his life for. To allow disunity to continue is fundamentally at odds with the purpose of God in the world. We cannot ignore God's passion for oneness amongst his people. Ephesians 4, Paul says, make every effort to keep what? The unity of the spirit. Notice he doesn't say create it. Doesn't say create it. This is not some human project. This is not gonna be a, you know, a South England conference rolled out program next year. No, this has been going on for a long time, long before we were created. He doesn't say create unity. He says keep it, maintain it, because it's not ours in the first place. Make every effort, pay any price, don't spare the pain, because Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit desire oneness. Do not take this lightly, brothers and sisters, tonight as you come to the table. That's why I don't understand why churches or people who, who bear the name of Jesus allow slander to go unchecked, rumors and gossip to go on, unresolved conflicts, bitter words, power struggles, unforgiving spirits, judgmental heart, deliberately avoiding someone, trying to hurt someone, day in and day out, week in and week out, allowing what God prizes most to be trampled underfoot. You don't dare. You don't dare, not here, not now. Final point. Those 12 men, having experienced the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, discovering the heart of the Godhead, desiring oneness, and they get it, and so can we. They live out from an authentic community of love and reach out to a broken and fallen community in the world. 
John says, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you should love one another as I, this is a new thing, isn't it? It's not new to love. What was new about it was as I have. That puts it at another sphere, doesn't it? As I have loved you, love one another. And why? You want to know how to make God known? You know the most effective way of making God known today, here and now? It is contained in this verse. By this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, the best witness we have is not the campaigns. It's not the flat flyer distribution. It's not the preacher. It is an authentic community that loves each other and reaches out because of the oneness they have attained to a broken world and invites them back into the fellowship that God wants all people to enjoy. I recommend Jesus to you tonight. Whenever there were problems in the church, the Apostle Paul would always, and you read it in his letters, would always say, you know what you need? You need another vision of Jesus. You need to see him again. You need to see how he works with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is my prayer tonight, as we approach the table, that we will experience afresh and anew the power of the gospel so that it continues to change us. It is my prayer this evening that we would know the unity and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It is my prayer tonight as we come to the table that you and I would go and create in love, by love, through love, in love, communities that are real, authentic, to reach out to a broken world who will take notice and say, they must be his disciples. May God bless you in Jesus' name.